You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Revelations chapter 8 and chapter 9. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, And I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. 
they were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns on the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year, were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands to stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see, hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Right, it's pretty bleak. Not so many coffee cups with those passages printed on them. But it's God's word, and uh, we're thankful for it. All of God's words are useful, useful. It's one of my great um, privileges of my life to open God's words here each week. And um, I've been around here for a while now, and we've gone through a bunch of different uh, series together. One of my favorite uh, series that we went through was last year in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that? Just loved looking at Jesus' words in Matthew. And um, 
the way that he just paints a picture of the flourishing life, the righteous life. And uh, you might remember we began that series by looking at his, uh, the first teaching that he gave as he started his public ministry. And it's in Matthew chapter 4. And um, let me read it for you from Matthew 4. This is uh, at the very beginning of his public ministry. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. He was announcing that the kingdom of God was in fact in him. He was the one who was bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. And so he instructs us to pray that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. He began that, the inauguration of God's kingdom, and what we're reading about, and we'll see by the time we get to chapter 20 and 21 of uh, Revelation, is that, uh, that final consummation of his kingdom, when heaven really does come to earth. But as Jesus says, and John the Baptist before him, whenever God's kingdom comes, it comes with a call to repentance. Repentance literally means turning around. It means recognizing that I'm not walking in God's ways and according to his will. And so that recognition brings a sense of conviction that I'm wrong and that I need to turn around and walk back to God, walk back to Jesus, keep in step with him. That's what so much of the Sermon on the Mount was about. It was an illustration of what it means and what it looks like to live in step with Jesus, to live the righteous life. To be righteous in Jesus' language means to do what God does, to think God's thoughts after him, to walk in step with Jesus. So the kingdom comes with a call to repentance. We're going to see today in this passage, everything that happens is designed to bring us, human beings, to repentance. One of the reasons that God's kingdom has not yet come in its fullness, one of the reasons that the kingdom has not yet come uh, to earth, that the, one of the reasons that we're not yet in Revelation chapter 20 is because God is patiently waiting for us to repent. This is what Peter says in his uh, second letter and to Peter, he, he describes exactly this. He says, the Lord does not delay his promise, that is bringing his kingdom in its fullness, does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so God's motivation in delaying the coming of his kingdom and its fullness, his motivation is one of love. Because he loves us, his desire is not that we would perish. Not that these horrible judgments that are befalling the people in this passage, not that they would fall on us, but rather that we would repent and live. We would turn away from living for ourselves, living for demonic forces opposed to God, but to recognize our state and to turn to him to receive his gracious welcome, acceptance, adoption, forgiveness, mercy. That's what's motivating the delay. That's why he hasn't yet come. 
Now, today's passage that we just heard read so beautifully well, I might say, this passage uh, has its background in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, then you would have you would have heard a lot uh, that's familiar to you in that reading this morning. In 2017, we worked through the first half of the book of Exodus, and uh, you might remember that uh, Pharaoh of Egypt has enslaved the people of Israel and is refusing to let them go. And so God, because he's a God of justice and liberation, has a plan for their release. And the way that he does it is by judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians and sending plagues in order to break Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, in order to break his resolve to keep God's people under his thumb. And the plagues are designed to bring him to repentance. And so he sends plague after plague, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to repent until the great final plague that destroys the firstborn of Egypt. That's part of our origin story in being Red Door Church, you'll find in that story. So, in the first four trumpets that are sounding this morning, the trump, these trumpets which... Uh, reveal God's will and, um, and not only reveal but uh, uh, put into practice, execute God's will, you're going to see that they, are, they have echoes of exodus in them. You've got um, hail and blood and poison and water and uh, poisoned water and, uh, and eventually you get locusts as well. All of these uh, echoes of, of Exodus chapter 7 through, I think it's to, to verse 11. This is God's intention in sending those plagues way back in the book of Exodus. He says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. That's the issue. His heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out to the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Sign of uh, God's presence with Moses. Tell him, the Lord God, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness but so far you have not listened. And that is repeated over and over again. God acts in judgment, sending plague after plague, and Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to repent. That's the issue. And that's the very thing that's going on here. And God's action in sending these plagues is the same. He has the same intention as he did with Pharaoh and Egypt, his intention is to break our sinful resolve, to soften our hardened hearts, to experience conviction of sin and turn to him for mercy. He promises pardon. He promises 
mercy, grace, forgiveness to all who turn to him. That's the idea. So you've got these four, first four trumpets, verse 7 to 12, and they have these echoes of the plagues of Exodus. They're horrible. They're catastrophic. But things are about to get worse. In a very sort of Tolkien-esque scene, you've got verse 13, where a, a John looks and Here's an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. It's only going to get darker. And this this is repeated, really. There's an escalation of judgment that comes. We're not even at the bowls yet. The bowls make this stuff look like Kindergarten, it's horrible. It only gets worse. And so we come to the locusts. Again, echoes of Exodus. Locusts in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. So you have this star, which is sort of symbolic of an angel, an angel that crashes to earth, an angel who has Jesus' key with him. Remember right back in chapter 1, Jesus announces himself to John as the one who has the keys of death and Hades. The abyss is Hades. It was a place in, in Hebrew thought where... Uh, Everyone went after they died, good and bad. Everyone goes to this holding place, waiting for the coming of God's kingdom. And so you have this angel, not a bad angel. Some have seen this as being like an evil angel, but I think the fact that he's got the key from Jesus shows us that he has uh, intentions to, to reveal God's will, to enact God's will, to execute God's will. You see him a little bit later on wrestling Satan. So he comes down, he has the key from Jesus, and he unlocks the abyss. And out of it comes this judgment from God, the locusts, the weird scorpion locusts. I don't recommend, in fact, I forbid you from doing any Google image searches of the book of Revelation. It's all bad. It's, it's all weird and bad, all right? Uh, you'll find charts and graphs and all kinds of strange predictions about current world events. And you'll find stuff like people who think that these locusts are actually helicopters and 
the vision is actually of current conflicts in the Middle East or whatever. It's all bad. But I did find one pretty cool picture of these locusts. So I'm just going to show you this and then tell you not to do it yourself, all right? Do as I say, not as I do. All right, so that's pretty cool. I think that's from a video game or something, maybe. Um, ask Josh. He's, he's got the nerd credentials to tell you. But um, the, either one of them. Uh, so this is a... <laughs> This is a weird demon locust scorpion. And these are the things that come out from the abyss as part of God's judgment on the earth. It's very important that we get that. This is not just hell letting itself loose and doing what it wants. This is allowed by God as part of his will revealed in the scroll that's just been opened. And so they come to inflict torment on the people of the earth. Not to kill them and not to eat all the plants like locusts normally do, like the locusts of the book of Exodus did, but to torment. And here's the reason why images like this aren't helpful. It's because these creatures described aren't animals They're not literal locusts, they're not helicopters, they are in fact demons, and the language used is symbolic language. These creatures are demons who are very real, who are very much present among us and not just released at the end of time or whatever. This is a description of life right now. Demons are uh, servants of their king, as he says in this passage. The king, Abaddon, Apollyon, means destroyer. That's Satan, the destroyer. Satan, king of demons, is bent on destruction, principally the destruction of God's people, though it's very important that we notice in this passage, it makes very clear that these beasts, these demons, can't touch those who have been sealed by the blood of the Lamb. Remember, we saw that last week, what it means to be sealed. It means to be saved. Verse 4 and 5 says, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. I don't know if you've ever experienced any interaction with demons. Uh, I can say confidently that you have whether you know it or not but I wonder if you've ever been conscious of the presence of evil it's easy for us in the sort of uh, post-enlightenment west to scoff at stories about demons but you talk to anybody from parts of the world where they still have their eyes open to this kind of thing and they'll tell you in no uncertain terms that this realm exists and that these beings exist and that they hate us and are bent on our destruction. 
The reason we may not experience them is not because they don't exist, but because we have been blinded to them. We've blinded ourselves to them. We've written them out of our script. I had this really very profound encounter with demons when I was 19 years old. I've told the story before, and I won't go into all the details. We don't have time, but it all centered around my conversion. When I was 19 years old, I was living in America and working with the Salvation Army as they were sharing the gospel with inner city kids in, in Pittsburgh. And all of these kids came out of situations that look a whole lot like this, like just chaotic, abuse-ridden, horrible situations. I didn't meet one kid out of hundreds who had a good upbringing, a relatively peaceful life. Every one of them carried weapons. They had to. And so it was a shock when one night I heard them all crying. In it, and I walked into their little like, um, room that they slept in and found every single one of them these tough, like, from the streets, weapon-carrying ghetto kids, all of them huddled together in the corner crying. And when I asked them what was going on, every one of them gave me the same story. There was something in the room with them. They had seen it, something in the room, and it made them feel sick, it made them feel terrified. And I because I grew up in the, this country, figured they were lying or that they were mistaken or that they were messing around with me or something, and so I let it go. And then the next week, a whole different busload of kids came in from a whole different part of the city, and they saw the same thing. And then it happened again and again each week for about six or seven weeks. And in the midst of that, one kid's bag that was sitting in the room just started burning was on fire. And then the radio that was in my room started playing music in the middle of the night and it wasn't plugged in. And then I got really sick, like really sick, had to go to the hospital sick and they were worried I would die sick. And then someone prayed for me and I was healed and all of this stuff was happening all at once and it was overwhelming. I was terrified. I did not sleep with the lights off for a year after all of that happened. And every now and then, in admittedly extraordinary circumstances, some of us have our eyes open to reality. And the reality is that there is a demonic realm, a whole realm of beings beyond our capacity to see, hear, touch, or smell, most of the time, that are actively opposed to the Lamb and his people. They hate you. They hate you. And they serve a king, Apollyon, the destroyer who hates you. We use that terminology sometimes. I really hate broccoli. 
I'm not talking about that kind of hate. I'm talking about an obsessive hatred that motivates and mobilizes everything they do. They hate you. John has his eyes opened to this reality, and this is what he sees. It's symbolic language, but it's meant to give you an idea of just how dangerous and powerful these beings are, and that in this case, they have been allowed by God as part of his plan of judgment to do violence on the earth. Now, in the midst of all of this, we need to remember that they are not permitted to touch those who have the seal. This is where we need to remember, and this is really paradigmatic for the whole book. Remember back in chapter 1, where Jesus reveals himself to John, his response is appropriate and maybe a little bit like the response you have to reading about things like this, right? In, in chapter one, uh, he sees Jesus, and when it, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Don't be afraid. If you're reading the book of Revelation and particularly these judgments that keep unfolding, particularly the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, if you read it and your response is fear, you know that you're reading it wrong. Let me me say that differently. You're probably reading it right, but you're forgetting who you are. You are the one that Jesus looks at and says, don't be afraid. He's the king. There is King Apollyon, King Destroyer, but he is a false king. He's like a kid who puts a crown on his head and says, look at me. He is not the king of kings and lord of lords. That's Jesus. There's only one. And so if we belong to him, we have nothing to fear, even though there is much to make us tremble. And we should read this, and a right response is to tremble, but not to fear, not to despair. Our response should be not to despair, but to turn, to turn to turn away from all that is dark and demonic in the world and turn to Christ, turn to the light. Anyway, look, it only gets worse. I'm not going to lie to you. There's uh, the locust thing that's pretty bad, but then you've got the four horsemen that we saw last week. They are uh, set... um, set free and lead an army of uh, 200 million. So that's a lot. And um, it's a lot of uh, just, it's a lot of horror, really. 200 million horses with lions, mouths and tails, snake heads, and just 
terrible stuff. Verse 13 to 19, you can read about that. I want to get to the point, and I think it's right for us to ask, what is the point of all this carnage? The point is that it's God's judgment on the earth, just judgment, righteous judgment. The shocking thing is not that God is judging the earth. The shocking thing is that some are spared. It's his judgment that's designed to bring us to repentance. It's designed to make us see that we are broken, that we are idolaters. We worship those things that are not the one true God, that we are participants in the schemes of Satan and his demons, to recognize that and to turn away from them. Remember, that's what repentance is. It's turning. It's active. It's mobilized. The tragedy of this passage is that by the end, verse 20 to 21, the tragedy is that after all of those things, the ones who have not been destroyed, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshipping demons idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Those things just illustrative of a life that is lived opposed to God, refusing to bow the knee to him, refusing to walk in step with Jesus. Now, mercifully, we're going to get to, I don't know, in a couple of weeks' time, we get to, get to a point where people do, in fact, respond to God's judgment by glorifying him, repenting, turning to him. But at this point, no, they refuse. Their hearts are hardened. They're Pharaoh-like in response to God's judgments that are designed to have them turning to him for mercy. God desires that none should perish, but that all should turn to Christ and live. We say that every week. What is God's desire, even in the midst of judgment? That none should perish, not even one, not even that really, really, really bad dude, not even that pedophile, that murderer, that adulterer. No one. His desire is that none should perish. All should turn to Christ and live. So I want to finish by talking about repentance. I want to talk to all of us about repentance. Here in this passage, we have this division between those who have been sealed by God and those who haven't. But the call to repentance is universal. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the whole Christian life is one of repentance. This isn't this one-time thing that you turn to Christ and sign that insurance form against hell and then, you know, just cruise. No, repentance is constant. 
It's a constant recognition that by nature and choice, I have this bent towards self-worship and away from true worship. I have this desire to serve myself rather than serving the living God. So let's talk a little bit about Repentance. Repentance follows conviction of sin. I don't just mean doing a bad thing. I mean my nature. I recognize that I still have flesh. I don't mean blood and, and meat. I mean the, the part of me that is not yet made whole, that has not yet been resurrected and restored. There is part of me, though I am filled with the Spirit and marked with the seal, there is part of me that still is this, is this desire to serve myself, this desire for me to be king. And when I recognize that, it might follow an act of rebellion against God. It might just come with the recognition that he is holy and perfect and I am not. But when I have that conviction which comes from the Holy Spirit, I have before me like options in how to respond. And so I'm, I'm, I hope I'm talking now about an experience you're very familiar with, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How do you respond to that? One response is just to ignore it, bottle it, push it away. Pretend it's not there. There is a whole kind of movement in, in, in therapeutic circles that that's how we should treat feelings of shame or conviction or guilt. Those things are unhealthy. They'll diminish your self-esteem, and so you just need to get rid of them. No. All right? Conviction of sin leading to feelings of grief is a good and godly thing. If you've done wrong, you should feel bad. So leaving aside the just pushing it away thing, we've then got two choices. And this is really helpfully illustrated for us by the Apostle Paul. So in 2 Corinthians, this is how he describes the choice before us when we feel grief over sin. He says, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So there's these two paths in the midst of our grief over our sin. There's worldly grief and godly grief. And my fear is, and this is just my own experience, I'm projecting it onto you and expecting that you've experienced the same. My fear is that many of us are content with worldly grief. We're content to feel bad about the thing we've done or the person we are maybe throw in a little bit of self-recrimination and self-hatred and then feel like that's achieved something. And it hasn't. It's achieved nothing. It only leads to death. 
The truth is, I think, that it is easier and more palatable to us to hate ourselves for a certain amount of time than to actually change. Self-hatred is easier than repentance. Self-hatred is immobilizing. It keeps us where we are. And what follows will be absolutely certain repetitive sin. Godly grief leads to action. It mobilizes. It moves us. I turn away from that which is destroying me and leading to death. I turn towards Christ, who is the example of the perfect human being, the flourishing human being, the godly, holy human being. Repentance means I leave my flesh and walk in step with him by the Spirit. It's action. You see this in the, in the story of the prodigal son, which is just the best story that's ever been told. All right, And the, 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 the prodigal son, you know, he ends up in the, this faraway foreign country. He has got no money. He is feeding pigs, wishing that he could eat what they were eating. It's just a shame-ridden picture. It's pathetic. But rather than sitting there among the pigs and hating himself and reproving himself, rebuking himself and wallowing in worldly grief, what does he do? I'll demonstrate. This is him with the pigs. He experiences grief. He recognizes that he's an idiot, that he's done the wrong thing, that he's wasted his money and his life. But then, crucially, he gets up. He gets up and he walks home He returns to his father. And what does he say to him? I've sinned against you, against heaven and before you, he says. He gets up and he walks home. That's repentance. Let us not be content with worldly grief. I'm such an idiot. I've done this again. And thinking that that achieves something. Rather, let us get up and walk back to the Father. That's where we need to be. That's repentance. You know, one of the first hikes I did out here when we moved out here, I got absolutely lost which is nothing new for me. I get lost walking from here to Coles, all right? But in this case, I was completely lost with no idea where I was, and it's because I'm an idiot, all right? I don't like walking on trails. That's where other people have been. It's boring. And so I just kind of struck out into the Lerderderg and got very lost on the top of this ridge, really high, with the sun going down and no phone reception. I sent about 40 messages to Renee saying, you're not getting this, but I'm really lost. And 
I heard this, this thing once, fascinating quote, that uh, people who die in the wilderness die of shame. And it's because they realize that they're lost and their response is to uh, shame themselves. How did I get here? What have I done? How could I be so stupid? And they sit down and they die. Die of shame. My response to being lost was to go berserk. I just panicked. It's very strange to experience real panic. Uh, we're used to feeling anxiety. Maybe you've got to give a speech at a wedding or something. That's anxiety. But sheer panic, where you do dumb things trying to get yourself out of trouble. And I just started tearing around up on top of this ridge trying to find the trail that I left hours ago, the light fading, and the whole time hating myself. How could you be so dumb? What if you die? You could die. Two small children, you idiot. Why? Just like, you know, worldly grief. And then, by God's grace, I stopped. And I just did the one thing that can save your life in those situations. I thought. And I remembered that I had parked my car by the river and that all I needed to do was find the river and I could walk back to my car. And so I got up and I walked to the river and it took me back to my car. And the point is that through every mess of your own making that you find yourself in. Pursuing your own will and ways, pursuing your own kingdom, serving self, indulging self. In the midst of that mess, when you're completely lost and the light is fading, there is a river of grace that flows through every single situation that you find yourself in. And repentance is getting up and walking to the river of grace that will lead you back to the Father. Worldly grief leads to death, and godly grief leads to repentance. This passage, I believe, In this passage, God wants to remind us of the necessity of repentance. This is not just for the bad people in our church or just the bad people outside of our church. This is a universal call to every single one of us. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the opportunity now to repent. And I want to pray that from this moment forward, that act, it's an action, that act would be repeated over and over and over again. Not because I want you to sin over and over and over again, but because you will sin over and over and over again, and the right response is time after time, running back to the Father.
We're going to have a moment here where Les is going to sing for us and we're just going to sit and we're going to contemplate the holiness of God, his righteous judgment, and our need to respond with repentance and faith. Let me pray for us and then you pray for you. Don't pray for your husband who needs to repent, all right? Pray for you who needs to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy in showing us this vision which is scary, threatening, leaves us trembling, and thank you for assuring us that we are safe because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. And I pray for those of us who take your name, that you would lead us day after day, hour after hour, into a rhythm of regular repentance. Lord God, when we find ourselves in the muck, or when we find ourselves lost, with no way of getting out, please help us to look for your river of grace. Father in heaven, I pray for this church corporate that you would make us a people of repentance, that our agenda would never be to pursue our own glory or to prop up our own reputation but that we as a church would be a church of rhythmic and regular repentance. Have mercy on us. Have mercy. Father, now as we, each one of us, turns away from sin and towards Christ, please, by your Spirit, give great affirmation Remind us of your goodness and love. Give us a clear image of a father who runs down the road to meet us, embraces us, kisses us, puts a robe around our shoulders, a ring on our finger, and welcomes us into the house. Remind us of who and whose we are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Did you?